Other People with Brad Listy is a weekly podcast featuring in-depth interviews with today's leading authors, poets, and screenwriters. Electric Literature calls it one of the best podcasts on the web, and BuzzFeed calls it the perfect way to get the stories behind your stories. There are now more than 400 episodes available, including one featuring me. And counting. Really? Yeah. The, the, I talked to him a couple of years ago when I was oh. promoting one of my novels. Brad, uh, Brad, Listy, Brad Listy is a great resource, right? He's the, the Nervous Breakdown has been a great literary podcast for almost a decade. No, now. he's fantastic. He gets the best people and he, he asks terrific questions. Hear conversations with writers like George Saunders, Cheryl Strayed, Roxanne Gay, Leslie Jameson, Hanya Yanagihara, Jonathan Lethem, Sheila Hetty, Eileen Miles, and many more. Other People with Brad Listy has its own official app available for free at your local app store. The show is also available for free at iTunes and Stitcher and on the web at otherpeople.com. That's otherppl.com. It's a cool podcast. Check it out. Hello, Radioland, Podcastville, and all the ships at sea. My name is Seth Greenland, and you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported Los Angeles Review of Books. On today's show, we'll hear conversations with Marsha Clark of O.J. Simpson trial fame. And crime novelist. Graphic novelist Sonny Liu. And one of the founders of the Los Angeles Times Festival of Books, Steve Wasserman. Joining me are my usual co-hosts. She is the former fiction editor of LARB. She is now a roving editor without portfolio or with every portfolio, however you want to look at it. Lori Weiner. Hello. Hi, Seth. Hi. Hi, hi, hi. And our co-host, he's the founding editor of LARB, the professor, Tom Lutz. Hello, Tom. The professor. So, guys, we spent uh, how many hours at the Los Angeles Times? 72 straight hours. Book festival last weekend. It was endless. The sleepless microphone. We did how many interviews? 75. Many, many, many interviews. They were fascinating for the most part. Almost everyone. Almost everyone. I won't say who wasn't. No. That person got (laughs) cut. There was we didn't cut anybody. We were uh, well. Actually, I should tell you what the Los Angeles Festival of Books is first. Oh, it's a festival. Do. It's a festival. It's a festival. For, it's a festival. And uh, Lori, about how many people show up at the Los Angeles Festival of Books? Three hundred million. It's actually about one hundred and fifty thousand. And Tom Lutz, my esteemed co-host, where is the festival? It's in Los Angeles at. The University of Southern California. And it takes over the campus. It's like a whole Woodstock, Bookstock, Bookchella. It's got all kinds of cutesy nicknames. Yeah. It's a major literary scene. We did a lot of interviews there. Uh, A lot of people were gracious enough to spend time with us. And uh, we should uh, get to uh, listen to them right now, I think. Continuing the alfresco theme at the Los Angeles Times Festival of Books, it has stopped raining, but we're... We're damp. I think it's safe to say we're damp. But we're going to get warmed up because we're very excited about this guest. She is a former prosecutor, now a big-time author. Her new book is called Blood Defense. Marsha Clark, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So you're here on a 
a crazy week because the, the FX series just ended and uh, your fame has exploded all over again. And what, what's that been like for you as somebody who's really a, a private citizen to, to go through that experience twice but in a different way? You know, at first it was a just, I was praying it wouldn't happen. I was praying it would go away. Then I heard Ryan Murphy signed on and I thought, okay, this is definitely happening. But he's really great, so it's going to be something good. And then I heard Sarah Paulson was going to play me. And I've been a fan of hers for years. I wish she would play me. Yeah, <laughs> I know, exactly, right? She's so amazing. So I, then I couldn't resist. You know, I, I actually just wanted to see, you know, what did they do? What did sure. they say about us? And I got curious about it. And then, of course, I got sucked in by the performances. I mean, Sarah's brilliant. They're, it's just an amazing, amazing show. We are all writers, all four of us, and I'm really curious, what, what is the perspective of someone for whom there, there's you, Marsha Clark, the author, the former prosecutor, and Marsha Clark, the fictional character, which is what we saw on television, because that's not a documentary. No, it's That's not. a fictional character. It's a fictional, well, it is and it isn't. But talk about that duality. Okay. You know, it's fictionalized in the sense that they certainly took liberties in some ways. I mean, you see conversations that occurred between Johnny and Chris Darden. Okay, you know that they did not talk to any of the players. They didn't talk to any of us about what really happened. Oh, so they didn't. Those, mm. No, never. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, those conversations had to be dreamed up. They didn't happen. But they certainly did deliver on the essence of the characters, all of them, really. So in that sense, it was very true. And it was also very true on um, the issues that they attacked, you know, the issue of race. Um, they certainly did um, attack that in a way that's true. The part that wasn't true is that they made me sound as though I didn't believe that I was going to have a problem in particular with black women. Of mm -hmm. course I knew that. Of mm -hmm. course I did. How could I look at the focus group, see them, you know, yeah. respond the way they did and not know? We knew. There were just little things. But really, the thing that's so amazing is that they pulled out the sexism. No one ever talked about that back then. No one mentioned, you know, what that was like. And it's so interesting to see them do it here. That's it made I, the series so successful. Mm -hmm. I, I thought uh, one of the things that seems so obvious from the series and should have been so obvious at the time, but somehow wasn't, at least to me, was that it was two conflicting narratives, American narratives. One is the woman being battered and killed by her husband, and the other is the, the black man being uh, falsely accused by police. And... The fact that that narrative won in that situation is so mind-blowing. Yeah. And also, I think that in terms of advancing the cause of justice you know, and equality for all, I don't think you can advance justice with an unjust verdict. That is something, actually, that um, Professor Gates said in the immediate aftermath of the verdict. Um, he felt that way, too. He said that very thing. He said, this is payback, but no one gets paid. Mm -hmm. And Chris and Johnny actually are shown in the series having that conversation. It's a profound conversation. Whether they really had it or not, I don't know. Johnny was saying, well, now we're going to have the conversation. Finally, we're going to talk about why there's so much mistrust in the minority communities towards the law enforcement. And, and Chris said, no, we won't. No, we won't. Mm -hmm. They're going to continue to beat us. They're going to continue to arrest us. And, and all we know now, and all anybody will know as a result of this, is that some rich guy in Brentwood can get off. Yeah. That was what I actually told the jury in the very beginning during voir dire. And I reminded them that our office prosecuted the Rodney King cops. We thought they were guilty. We thought they should have been convicted. Mm -hmm. But just know that, that acquitting Simpson, even though he's 
proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt will not get you anywhere. You will not send a message and you will not achieve payback. And right after that, one of the black women on the jury went out and was overheard saying, yes, it is. It's payback time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So do you think the real killers will ever be caught? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a comedy show. Did, did your publicist tell you? We took a turn. <laughs> but, but I do wonder about the karmic nature of, of Johnny Cochran's career. And I know you've written a little about, about this, that you know he spent his life devoted to this very good cause. And then... You know, the flowering of his career is is this. It just seems, the irony just seems, I don't know, Lori's, apparatus. Yeah. Lori said something last week that I, I want to quote you, Lori. When we were talking about had Johnny Cochran passed away not that long after the trial, and none of us knew how he had died, what the circumstances of his death were. And I remember saying to Lori, how did, how did Johnny Cochran die? And Lori said, of an exploded conscience. <laughs> Is there some truth to that? Because what do, you, what do you think he thought as he was going through that process with you? Okay, so Johnny really, that was his specialty. He always, all, all the cases that he tried, he always put the police on trial. He was representing a black defendant. Um, and, and this was something he truly believed. The irony in the Simpson case is that he brought that very righteous indignation and 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 anger toward the injustices to the benefit of someone who was beloved by the police. O.J. Simpson, as he himself has been quoted, I'm not, I'm not black, I'm O.J. Uh, true, and everyone believed him, including all of those cops, <laughs> which is the biggest irony. So he, he brought this very worthy cause to the service of a man who really didn't merit it. But he never apprehended that himself. Johnny I'm not sure he didn't. You know, I mean, at the end of the day, he's also a defense attorney who wants to win his case. Mm -hmm. Both things can be true. He mm -hmm. can truly believe in the cause and also say, but I'm going to use the cause to get somebody off just because I can. So let's, let's talk about the novels. Yes. Uh, which is a better job, being a, a prosecutor or being a novelist? <laughs> at the time, you know, yeah. I would have told you being a prosecutor. But, I mean, this is something that you grow and you, you know, you go through different phases in your life. And I initially wanted to be a crime fiction author when I was a child. Ah, so for me, it was, okay. it, this is now like the fulfillment of a childhood dream. To, to talk about the transition, because you've written a bunch of these novels. Yeah. And it's very daunting to write that first novel. Could you walk us through that process for you? you <laughs> you're quitting the law, fulfilling the fantasy of many attorneys, I think, who'd like to be crime novelists, actually. It's not... It's a thing, actually. It's a thing? Is it? I think yeah. so. Yeah, and and you you made that leap, and how how did you do it? How did you write that first novel? I wrote a few first novels mm -hmm. that no one saw, so that's one uh -huh. thing. You okay. know, uh -huh. by no means did you did the first one get published. So I I started. You know, I wrote I think about three actually, um, almost all the way through, before I finally hit on the the world and the characters that actually worked and then so it, it was a long process and it started actually with writing for television I well I was a consultant for a lifetime television show called for the people based on the DA's office writing scripts there then I started writing scripts with the, the showrunner for other networks and that led me into writing you know kind of that kind of flashbulb moment for me um, if I'm gonna ever realize a childhood dream it's now or never mm -hmm. So I decided to do yeah. it. And so it's, it's really wonderful, though, especially now the new book, Blood Defense, incorporates all of my experience. We have a lead who is a criminal defense lawyer with a kind of a warped sense of justice and, yeah, kind of a twisted person. And it gives me a chance to really 
kind of push the edges of the boundaries of things. Whereas before, the early series that I did with Rachel Knight, she was a prosecutor. You have to be so much more ethical and you have to be, you know, clean, honest, upright, and true. And I didn't want to do that anymore. Who does? <laughs> that was enough of that, really. Yeah, it's you so know? boring. It's, like, it's so, so boring. boring. <laughs> <laughs> so I uh, came up with Samantha Brinkman, who had a very tortured past, um, but is now struggling to make it as a criminal defense lawyer. Mm-hmm. And in blood defense, she has one of her first big cases. And um, it's a wild ride. <laughs> the book is Blood Defense. Marsha Clark, thanks so much for coming Thank on you. the show. It's such a pleasure. Thank you very much, guys. It's really fun. We also have a video interview of Marsha Clark at LAReviewOfBooks.org, so if you want to check that out, click on that link. You can see whether her hair is straight or curly. This is Seth Greenland. I'm here with Tom Lutz and Lori Weiner on KPFK 90.7 FM, the LA Review of Books radio hour. We are here at the Los Angeles Times Festival of Books conducting a series of fascinating interviews. At the LA Times Festival of Books, it is a deluge. My shoes are wet. We are here with Sonny Liu, who's written a book called The Art of Charlie Chan Hak Chai. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So it says Sonny, presented by Sonny Liu, not written by. What's the, uh, why does it say presented by? Um, well, the book is essentially a history of Singapore, but told through the lens of a fictional comic artist called Charlie Chan. Um, but I didn't want readers to to know from the offset that it was fictional. So saying presented maybe made things a little more ambiguous, I think. John Powers, a critic we all know and admire, uh, has said that uh, the art of Charlie Chan Hak Chai is the greatest work of art to come out of Singapore. Did, did he say arguably at the beginning of that sentence? <laughs> no, don't, don't bring that up. As I was saying, yes. John Powers, a critic we all like and admire, said that arguably the art of Charlie Chan Hak Chai is the greatest work of art ever to come out of Singapore. And my question is, what is it like for an artist in Singapore? Because, again, it's not a place one associates with artists, generally. Um, I, think, I think the problem in Singapore is that most of the money that goes into arts is from the government, um, primarily through a, a body called National Arts Council. And in the case of Charlie Chan, we actually had a grant from, the, from them um, before the book was published. And when, when the book came out, they withdrew the grant because they felt that the book had, uh, as they call it, sensitive content that they weren't comfortable with. What were they sensitive about? What did they think was sensitive there? Uh, well, you know, Singapore has been with one government in charge for 50 years, so they've, they've had the chance to essentially tell their version of history uh, the last 50 years, and uh, that means that there are parts of our history that's been left out of that official narrative, and this book, to some extent, explores that part of history. So to them, it's you know, a little bit subversive, a little bit, yeah. Is the book available in Singapore? Yes, it is. Um, th- they thought about batting it for like five minutes and then realized that we too draconian, I think, and, and just withdrew the grant in the end. And how has it been received? Well, because of that, that um, grant withdrawal, we got a lot of attention on social media and we sold, well, for, for a book like this, we sold a lot of books. Yeah. It always happens that someone tries to ban a book in some for way. Sure, yeah. But did you have to return money? How did, cause um, my publisher had to return $8,000 to, to the 8, government. 8000 Yeah. And how did you depart from the narrative that they wanted told? Well, uh, in, in, in a lot of ways, well, frankly. And a simple one would be sort of this so-called myth of Singapore that we, when we first began, we were a tiny fishing village that became, under the PAP's rule, a um, modern rich country. But if you look back at the records, uh, 
we were considered sort of the gem of the British Empire in, in Asia. We were sort of the New York of uh, Southeast Asia. So we, we were, in relative terms, a rich country in Asia at the time. So it wasn't a fishing village that became rich because of them. They, they built on what the British really had in those days. So that's one of the things that um, they sort of try to sell us in order to convince us that the PAP has done a lot for the country. But if you look at history, they, they have done a lot, but it's a little more, uh, more nuanced than that, I think. So tell tell us about Charlie. How Charlie Chan functions um, in uh, in the in the in the Singaporean imagination. I mean, it's a character that has a very specific place in American culture, and especially right, in right. Amer Asian American culture. Um, so I mean, the, the the name, the reference, obviously does evoke the, the old um, uh, Charlie Chan sort of. Uh, are they considered pulp? Detective. The yeah. detective. Yeah, yeah. But the, the the real genesis of the name actually came from a, a Wayne Wang movie called uh, Chan is Missing. Which was one of the seminal Asian American movies where he had a missing protagonist called Charlie Chan, and his friends were look, looking for him, and they would go talk to his uh, people he knew, and, and every one of them told sort of a different story, a different angle about this this guy called Chan, and I think this book in a way um, does a similar thing. It, it sort of gives it different views of, of sort of the same content, and you get different refracted views of, uh, and, and sort of a more inclusive and sometimes even contradictory perspective, I think. Yeah, Charlie Chan has taken on a very loaded uh, idea in America now because it's considered, a, Charlie Chan is considered a racist trope. And it's, as I, I think only, only an Asian artist could get away with using Charlie Chan in a title, actually. And it's, it's provocative. And I'm, I'm curious if you could address how that is, is that worked into the book? The, the, mm. the idea of, of Charlie Chan as a trope? Some not, kind of Orientalist. Um. Not so much, I think, because um, the name Charlie Chan in Singapore would have been plausible. Like it wouldn't have been back in the day, like in the nineteen fifties. You say name is Chan, your name is Charlie, mm -hmm. so you just put it together, right? So it's just some guy's name, All right? It exactly. Has no meaning. Exactly. For for the reader, and I'm sure there's some kind of ramifications or connotations, but uh, in the story itself, it never comes up as as a as an issue. I think. What place do comics? Uh, what, what role do comics play in Singaporean society? Because in America, they went from a degenerate teenage <laughs> thing that Congress tried to ban in the 1950s to the Museum of Modern Art. And I'm curious, have, uh, has the journey in Singapore been similar? We haven't got to the museums yet, I think. So, so, so in, in what is process, it like in Singapore, then? Well, um, most interesting is in, in the 1950s, where we were trying to gain independence. Uh, there, were qu there were quite a few sort of left-leaning artists who did woodcuts, like cartoons, um, to promote the sort of communist cause or the independence cause in Singapore. But by the time um, the PAP became the ruling party in the 60s, they, they were very conscious about what cartoons could do, uh, I think, in, in influencing people. So they actually, in essence, banned political cartoons about local uh, politicians. And even today, there's this guy called uh, Desmond something who does a comic called Democratic. Uh, and he he got he was put in jail for a day for for his cartoons on on the internet. Um, what's what's your profile in Singapore? It's it's been interesting because I've I've worked in commercial comics for maybe ten years before I did this book, and one of the reasons why I think they they give the grant in the first place was that they seen my name and uh, thinking that I, I just do like uh, books about robots and and animals. They just thought I'd be safe, you know. So so it wasn't until they read the book and it came out that they realized what was going on. All right, the book is The Art of Charlie Chan Hot Chai, Sunny Lou. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. This is Seth Greenland. I'm here with Tom Lutz and Lori Weiner on KPFK 90.7 FM, the LA Review of Books 
Radio Hour. We are here at the Los Angeles Times Festival of Books conducting a series of fascinating interviews. Did you always say to people, I was, I'm from okay, Berkeley, we're when they accused you of being an interloper? Weren't yes. you originally from Berkeley? I, I was born in Portland, Oregon. I grew up in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah. I, my parents came down to Sacramento, California. Then they came back to Oregon. Mm -hmm. Then they had the good foresight to move to Berkeley in August of 1963. Wow. Which permitted me a precocious adolescence. Oh my God. I have a feeling you would have had one anyway. The voice you hear that is not Lori Weiner is that of Steve Wasserman, the George Washington of the Los Angeles Times Festival of Books, who was stopped by to not, only, to not only raise the sartorial level of the show. Which is not hard. We look like the schleppers we always look like, but Steve is wearing white trousers, a violet blazer, a watermelon shirt. What brings you back? Um, I'm like a monarch butterfly. I always come back to California in my various peregrinations, and uh, since I did have something to do with being one of the principal architects of this festival, uh, I return to see how my baby has grown and matured, and I take some considerable satisfaction in the notion that an institution, as I say, that you helped give birth to can thrive and grow, and except for close friends and, and flattering comrades, not miss you at all. <laughs> you are taking over uh, the publishing company Heyday Books in Berkeley, mm -hmm. which is very exciting. Can you tell us something about what you're thinking about for the, what's your vision maybe for the, for the firm? The vision thing first and foremost is to build on the enormously admirable accomplishment by Malcolm Margolin, its founder, who when he founded it just over 40 years ago, he shaped it over the last four decades in a way that I always found as a reader exemplary. Um, he did it with uh, crazy glue and scotch tape, and he did it with a certain nimble genius. Uh, he was a master at collaborative publishing, finding allies to join him, whether it was the California Historical Society or others, to give a voice to the voiceless and to give a forum for neglected peoples of California. So he was very instrumental uh, in particular in, allow, in permitting and in resurrecting um, indigenous peoples of California. And uh, that was uh, exemplary, and I always admired it. I mean, Malcolm looked like a character who stepped out of the pages of R. Crumb, sort of unruly rabbinical beard, Coke bottle glasses, but an irrepressible curiosity and spirit. And so when this opportunity arose, uh, I rang Malcolm and asked him, if I were to throw my hat in the ring, would he encourage me? And he did. But we also uh, respond to what our last chapter was as we move on to our next chapter. How long have you been at Yale University Press? I've been at Yale for uh, nearly five years. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm a restless guy. Yes. And what can I say? I, I, uh, the prospect as I enter my dotage of being buried in the cold, hard, frozen, <laughs> Yankee soil of Connecticut. Somehow, I can't fathom that. And yeah, I no. still have too much of the scent of night jasmine, <laughs> eucalyptus, and a little whiff of Berkeley tear gas in my nostrils. <laughs> and so the call to return was strong. I also, uh, I have uh, two living parents, I'm happy to report. They're both in their mid-80s. They are ambulatory, they're in excellent health, I should be so lucky, they live in Berkeley, uh, but you know, I think to myself, how long can this go on? They must be thrilled, Kfelling. Yeah, my mother's overjoyed, I mean, I don't have to pay a publicist. 
You said uh, you're a restless guy, and your resume shows it. Uh, and Malcolm was not that guy exactly. One of the beautiful things about being about Malcolm was that was his calm. Um, and uh, are, are you gonna? Are, are, do, you, do you feel that the heyday will change in part because your personalities are quite? My different? wife hopes I will become more like him, <laughs> up to a point. Um, and I say things like, you know, I'll 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 go hiking and I'll 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 do these Malcolm-like things. And uh, she says, well, uh, well, wait to see it. I, you know, I'm a different sort of character. Mm-hmm. Um, although Malcolm and I recognize each other, I think it's fair to say, as kindred spirits in mm-hmm. many respects, although we present differently. Mm-hmm. And what, what do you think that's going to mean for the list? I don't know yet. Okay. I don't know yet. I mean, I think it means I have to shore up and make rock solid the things that have brought it to distinction so far. I have to give some thought, I think, to expanding in directions that are organically linked or grow out of its preoccupations or that don't seem foreign to it. For example? Um, well, I don't want to give away my hand okay. too okay. early. Right. I've, okay. I've, they haven't right. even, I haven't got my first paycheck yet. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and <laughs> while I don't think Heyday has many competitors within California or elsewhere, sadly. I mean, mm-hmm. one of the striking things about California generally is how few publishers there really are. And I think one of Malcolm's, uh, with all due respect to my alma mater, UC Berkeley, I think Malcolm has been eating University of California Press's lunch for some years now. And that's partly because University of California Press, again, with all due respect to colleagues who work there, um, has uh, become a more difficult enterprise, its ambitions constrained by the overall financial predicament of the university itself and certain pressures that exert themselves upon all university presses. One of the things that I has, have found more, most intriguing about the uh, publishing environment, there was so much fear, not wrongly uh, uh, felt, that the conglomeration of everything would sort of snuff out the uh, wily underbrush. and uh, But what one learns is that the bigger and more hegemony exerted by the large corporate publishers, you would think they would have nothing to fear and that so much cash flow would enable them to do provocative and dangerous things. But the irony is that they become more conservative. I don't mean necessarily politically, but they are more timid. It's harder for them somehow to take risks. And the real hard scrabble publishers whether it's Johnny Temple at Akashic, or whether it's uh, Kate Gale at Red Hen Press, or whether, you know, our longstanding and admirable publishers, Ferlinghetti and City Lights, is, or PM Books, or all these little publishers, some of them hostage to particular ideological or literary conceits. Nonetheless, they make it work, and they are the, uh, the seed that enriches an active and healthy culture. So in some way, I, I, I feel myself returning to my roots. Uh, you know, when I grew up in Berkeley, 19, and started frequenting Cody's books. I knew Fred Cody quite well. I went to high school with his kids. Ralph Gleason, the late music critic for the San Francisco Chronicle, I went to high school with his kids. I'm publishing at Yale University Press to uh, selected writings of Ralph Gleason and his conversations in jazz. You know, those are two books that Heyday could easily have done. Right. One of the things that, th- that, that uh, this moment reminds me of um, as a literary historian, a kind of lapsed literary historian, is what happened at the turn of the 20th century when you, Doubleday and Page merged and all, there was all this co- consolidation in corporate publishing. Mm. And it caused the outbreak of little regional magazines. It caused the outbreak of 
um, yeah, I mean, Livrite, um, Knopf, right. right, all kind of came, were little upstart publishers reacting to corporate hegemony, uh, right. squeezing out uh, interesting, quirky books. So uh, it, ma it makes sense that that's happening again now. And, uh, and we're glad that well, you're here. I, I, I'm a great admirer of what Dave Eggers and his talented group around him have accomplished with The Believer and McSweeney's. I think it's the most interesting uh, group to emerge in San Francisco since Ferlinghetti and the Beats. Absolutely. You know, and uh, major work and been very influential. Uh, so I, I, I'm excited. Well, uh, congratulations. We're, we're thrilled that you're we're here. We're very excited. And, uh, Thank you. We'll I'm happy to, to, to be returning list. home. Steve Wasserman, everyone. Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, you're welcome. For the rest of our talk with Steve Wasserman, go to the site, lareviewofbooks.org. Click on the link. There's video there of our talk with Steve. Check it out if you're interested. Thanks to Marsha Clark, Sonny Liu, Steve Wasserman. Thanks to our producer and moral conscience, Jerry Gorin, our crack production assistant, Ernesto Oraliano, czar of scheduling, Aviva de Kornfeld, and associate producer, Jim Lane. Find us on the web at lareviewofbooks.org. Download us on iTunes or wherever podcasts are available. Follow us on Twitter, should you be moved to do so. For Tom Lutz and Lori Weiner, this is Seth Greenland. Thanks for listening. Tom, will you be back next week? I will be back next week, and I want to shout out to Emerson College LA, who let us use their fantastic state-of-the-art studios here in Hollywood. Thanks to Emerson College. Lori, can we look for you next week? Absolutely. I will be here, and I will be on time. See you all then.